Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The Cut is the section of New York magazine that's targeted at, quote, women with stylish minds, end quote. Visit its website today and you'll find stories covering politics, relationships, work and equality, alongside beauty, style and fashion tips. Its podcast, The Cut on Tuesdays, covers similarly wide-ranging territory. It features profiles of inspirational women doing interesting stuff, together with stories about abortion, divorce, sexual harassment and motherhood. And there's plenty of room for the lighter stuff too, like an unrequited lust for Adam Driver and bad dinner parties. Here's a couple of clips from a recent episode dealing with the issue of family money, those who have it and those who don't. Starting with someone who's used to flying around in private jets and who knows what it's like to have more money than you can spend. Abigail Disney is an Emmy-winning documentary filmmaker, and she's also the granddaughter of Roy O. Disney, who co-founded the Walt Disney Company with her great-uncle, Walt. Abigail remembers that when she was a kid, her mom was always vague about the family's wealth. I remember saying to her one night, what class are we? Uh-huh. You know, And she said, oh, middle. <laughs> and then she said, upper middle. <laughs> upper, upper middle. That's where she settled. Upper, upper middle. <laughs> she just couldn't say, you know, upper. Abigail's dad had followed in his dad's footsteps. He worked at Disney, and the family lived right down the street from Disney Studios. She went to school with other kids whose parents worked in film and lived in a neighborhood that had been filled with Hollywood types for decades. We lived in this place called Toluca Lake. It was built in the 1920s by, like, a Hollywood property developer. It was a fake lake. Mm -hmm. And they brought in swans to live on the lake. And at the end of the lake, there was a golf course. And then there were pretty big houses around it that had all been bought by 20s movie people. So W.C. Fields lived on the lake. Amelia Earhart lived on the lake. The house that we lived in had been built by the guy who directed Marx Brothers films. Oh, wow. And W.C. Fields, every time he saw a swan, would come out with a shotgun. Oh, God. <laughs> and, and he would scare the swans away. So every, like, year they would bring in new swans. Yeah. And even long after W.C. Fields was dead, oh, my God. the swans would just fly off. It was like they all knew genetically yeah. that somebody was going to shoot them. Bob Hope lived in the neighborhood for years. Ronald and Nancy Reagan had their wedding reception there. And Abigail's family's house was one of the big ones. So we would get two doorbell rings from everybody who trick-or-treated from us because it was such a long distance from the front door to the back door. It all added up to a particular kind of childhood. We had a lemon tree in the backyard, and, and it was called the martini tree. <laughs> we left scotch for Santa. At first... Abigail had no idea there was anything out of the ordinary about her family. I remember when my Uncle Walt died in 1966, and uh, they took us out of class, and they brought us to the principal's office, and they said, we're so sorry to tell you your uncle died, and we were like, which one? I don't know. <laughs> so I had never really actually thought of him as anything other than another uncle. Yeah. Um, and then I remember seeing the cover of Time magazine, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Do all uncles end up on the cover? <laughs> yeah, exactly. After Walt died, Abigail's grandfather ran the company for a while. But after he died, 
What had once been a family business became something much bigger. Abigail watched as Disney grew into a corporate behemoth, an operation with fighting shareholders and soaring stock prices. And as the business got bigger, Abigail's family went from being merely rich to being extremely rich. My parents, you know, bought a plane when I was about 16 or something, and it was like a little plane with propellers, and they thought they were a big deal, and it was really exciting. We had this guy who flew us around on it, and it was nice, but it didn't get anywhere very fast. Yeah. So we bought a jet, but it was like the worst jet made. <laughs> it, was like, it was a jet, but it was the worst it jet. It was. It was just not a classy jet. It <laughs> didn't have thrust reversers, and so, you know, it, you couldn't land on certain kinds of runways and whatever else. So um, then he got a bigger jet that had seats for, like— 14, 16 people and a flight attendant now, and you could actually stand up in it, you know, and all sorts of exciting things. Um, so he was feeling like you could see it. You could see you could see him expand into the space he was giving himself. Um, and always there was this pressure from people around him like, but so-and-so has a bigger plane. You know, there's always a bigger plane. And um, And then they bought a 737. The end of Abigail's childhood arrived in the form of a family tradition. It was something her older siblings had already experienced. If you grow up in a family with some money, you've got a longtime family attorney, and he's always like an uncle to you, and the accountant is kind of like an uncle to you, and, and so it's, it's a weird thing. And uh, he would take us out to lunch when we were 18 and tell us how much money we had. It was a lot to take in. My older sister actually had a blood sugar problem, um, and sh- he told her, and then she fainted. Oh, God. Life inside the Disney clan's a long, long way from the financial issues that affected the politician Stacey Abrams growing up. Last year, she became the first black woman nominated for a governorship in any US state, narrowly losing the race as a Democrat running in a deeply Republican electorate. But at various points in her life, she's also been hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. So I had this credit card and I thought, I'm going to buy myself a TV. And it was the biggest expense I'd ever had, uh, other than college. Yeah. When I finished law school, I had to fill out this form uh, in order to sit for the bar exam. You have to fill out a form for financial fitness, or Mm -hmm. it's a moral fitness test, but they look at your finances. And I had to list every debt. Mm. And I pulled my credit report for the first time. I, I mean, I owed tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Mostly because of interest rates. And there were a lot of people who were mad at me. So what did, what did like, just on a literal level, that credit report look like the first time you saw it? It was really amazing because I'm looking at what the credit limit was and what I owed. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I'd been paying for that television for six years. It wasn't that nice a TV. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was good, but it should not have cost that much money. And like any young person who didn't have a lot of economic background. I hadn't paid every debt. Yeah. I hadn't paid my bills regularly. I paid when I had it. If my student loan didn't come in on time, then they didn't get paid. And they didn't come and take the TV back. So, okay. Seems like this is working. Exactly. Yeah. And so I had to clear up every single debt that I had outstanding other than student loans in order to wow. uh, become a, a lawyer in the state of Georgia. Stacy still had her student loans to pay off, but she'd taken care of her credit card debt. And after law school and the bar, she became a tax lawyer. She was making $95,000 a year, enough money to support herself and help her parents out, too. Then, 
A few years into her career, Hurricane Katrina hit. At this point, her parents were both working as ministers in Mississippi. And after Katrina, Stacy says their church couldn't afford to pay a full salary anymore. The right thing to do was obvious to her. She was going to support them, even if it meant taking on more debt. When Katrina hit, it was around the time that my younger brother was having more troubles with uh, drug abuse, and I'd been paying. I, I was the primary person who supported his uh, rehab, so he'd been in and out of rehab, which is an extraordinarily expensive proposition. That after my niece was born and my parents adopted her and she became part of it, uh, there was a period of time where I actually claimed my family as dependents. I was the head of household. Wow. Because... And, and I didn't want to do it. In fact, I didn't do it for several years until my accountant looked at me and said, this is stupid. And then I called my mom and dad and I said, well, mom, my accountant says I should count you as dependent. And I'm, I'm like, I don't want to do it if it's going to be. She's, my mother's like, why haven't you done this already? <laughs> <laughs> why didn't you want to? <laughs> because it seemed a, a usurpation of their response, of their role. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a tax write-off for me. It was my job. My parents gave me an extraordinary life, and it was my responsibility to do what I could. And I was making more money than anyone I knew. Yeah. <laughs> and so why not? But even though Stacy was making more money than anyone she knew, that money still wasn't enough to cover everything. She was dealing with the expenses of her brother's rehab, of her niece's care, and of her parents' day-to-day life. They used my credit cards. I was credit-worthy enough that I had a lot of credit available, and I used it. Yeah. And for a lot of people, that usage collapses in on you. The credit card debt was mounting, and so was the money she owed in taxes on her small business. Then she got the news that her dad would need cancer treatment. So, like the tax attorney that she was, she called the IRS to figure something out. And so I went on a payment plan because I'm not going to lose my father. And as I say, you know, I can defer tax payments. I cannot defer saving my dad's life. Yeah. Uh, that then led to me having outstanding tax debt. Last year, when Stacy was running for governor, she knew her finances were going to become public. At that point, she owed $50,000 in deferred tax payments and $170,000 in credit card and student loan debt. For me, I knew I had a long-term plan to pay it back. Uh-huh. But <laughs> under Georgia law, I had to report where I was at a certain point in time. And that meant that I had to report that tax debt and credit card debt. Yeah. As well as owing a lot of people for my education. Some of an episode of The Cut on Tuesdays called Family Money. And I spoke to the show's host, Molly Fisher, about The Cut's approach to storytelling. I think on the show, what we try to do is basically give free reign to all the things that we can't stop talking about or we're excited to have conversations about the things we're talking about with our friends, the things we're worrying about privately and wish we had an outlet for. And I think, you know, one thing that that has been very fruitful for us is things that make people feel embarrassed. I think there's something really (laughs) exciting and liberating about (laughs) about talking about things that make people a little bit uncomfortable. And certainly family money goes to that. But we cover a range of stuff from, you know, culture and style and literature to politics to personal stories, to, you know, big original reported pieces. It runs the gamut. It really does. I mean, I guess when I was reading about The Cut and it's dealing with fashion and beauty, it probably gives you a particular idea of what the show is about. But the more you listen to it, I mean, I was listening to a great story yesterday all about an immigration detention centre. Oh, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's got a really, really broad gamut of subjects you deal with. 
Where do the guests come from? Are they people that journalists have spoken to in connection with other stories that they push push them your way? Or how do you find them? Well, I mean, we have a team of producers, but also one of the nice things about being affiliated with The Cut and with New York Magazine is that we're also able to draw on the institutional expertise and connections and journalistic firepower that we've got there. So, you know, for example, um, there was a piece earlier this year that was a, a cover story of the magazine by the writer Lisa Miller about menopause and schizophrenia and the relationship between estrogen and women's mental health that had been, yes, a cover story for the magazine. And then we got Lisa to help us adapt that into a story for the show. So we had her talking about why she got interested in it in the first place and like having us go back to some of her sources to tell their stories and, you know, talking to experts who she'd spoken to. So we're able to kind of draw on a bunch of different resources. And also we Honestly, part of what's been most fun about this show for me is just that the reason I like my job at The Cut, where I've worked for now about six years, just over six years, I guess, is that I'm basically talking to people who are smart and funny all day. We have an amazing team of women who work on the site and some men, a couple men, and translating those conversations into a podcast has been just so much fun. And so getting to use the funny, smart, insightful, interesting, weird people I work with every day in this way has been really fun. I mean, I think that was really the forefront of our episode about being horny, another embarrassing topic, but one on which <laughs> our our staff had many, many great yeah, thoughts Yeah, I didn't realise Adam Driver was quite so popular, but my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm told after that episode came out, a couple of people who live in the same neighborhood has him told me that when they see him walking around in the neighborhood, he looks deflated. That it's very <laughs> disappointing in person compared oh, no. to <laughs> the idea of Adam Driver that we were putting forth. Yeah. And so you were working in print primarily, though, when the idea of the podcast came along. Is that right? Or web had you and done, print. Yeah. Have you done podcasting at all? So no audio. So was that a big readjustment Mm. for you or how how did that go? Yeah, it was totally weird. (laughs) (laughs) What did you have to start? Because it probably is a very different discipline. Because I mean, I know in audio, we sometimes go, it would be a great print story, but it's just not Mm going to work in audio. And you have the opposite problem, I guess, where, you know, something, yeah, something that's going to work in print because the person's fascinating and interesting might not work in audio because the person's just deathly dull and is very poor talent. Totally, totally. It's really hard. I mean, I think it's been it's been exciting to realize that there are things we maybe wanted to try to do in prose or in, you know, in writing that didn't end up quite working out and that we can now try to adapt into new forms or that we now have sort of like a, a new outlet to like funnel our ideas into. And I think also it's been a learning curve for me, certainly, to figure out out what things do and do not work in audio versus in print. I mean, I think um, one thing that has come up not infrequently is that so, so often I think at New York and at The Cut and, you know, maybe arguably to some degree on a lot of the internet, so much of what you read is arguments, basically. It's like opinion, it's ideas and essays and kind of, you know, if people want to be dismissive, hot takes. And that is not something that (laughs) makes a lot of sense in the context of audio. But I do think we've kind of had some luck figuring out a way to 
translate our interest in in essay driven sort of opinion driven things into audio. You know, when you see something like the episode we did on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or um, the episode we did on likability and female politicians, those are ones where you kind of had an argument we were making or like an idea we were trying to get at from a bunch of different angles. But it was a matter of figuring out how you sort of build an argument through lots of different voices as opposed to just sitting down at your computer and typing a blog post. Molly Fisher, the host of The Cut on Tuesdays from New York Magazine and Gimlet Media. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast hour from RNZ. If you're enjoying the show and it's helping you find new stuff to listen to, then please tell other people about us. Maybe mention it to a friend or a family member. And do please rate and review us on Apple or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. Not only does this help other people find us, but it also lets me know if I'm on the right track with the number of clips. Do you want some fewer stories, longer interviews? Just let me know about it. And I'm also really interested in finding out how people want me to podcast and publish stuff online. At the moment, I release the whole show in one chunk and also in shorter slices of individual shows too. But if this is just a pain and it's easier to just get everything in one programme, you don't have to fiddle around with and curate, just say the word and it shall be done. Thank you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.